someone may have 20 years of experience, but they essentially have the same two years of experience 10 times over because they've been in that same role as opposed to someone who has been in any number of different roles and has a much broader sense of experience, even though they may have only done that particular job for five years, but they've got 15 years of other kinds of experiences, which help them gate an organization or situations much more effectively. Welcome to Ambition Theory, Women in Construction. This show asks questions that everybody is thinking about, but doesn't want to say out loud. It's about tackling complex topics like why are there so few women in senior leadership positions? What is it going to take to change this? Each episode is a combination of motivation and tactical strategies to get ahead. We get out of our comfort zones and we take action. We learn, grow, and create opportunities. I am your host, Andrea Jansen, a certified executive coach with an MBA, and since 2018, I've coached over a thousand construction professionals to level up their leadership. Let's get started. Welcome to Ambition Theory, Women in Construction. Michael Regal is the author of the book, Build Like the Big Primes, a coach and a trainer whose focus is leadership development in the construction industry. And the cool thing about Michael is that we connected on LinkedIn because we both work with women in construction. Welcome to Ambition Theory, Women in Construction, Michael. I'm so happy that you're here. Can you introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Well, thank you for having me. This should be a lot of fun. And I I look forward to sort of talking about women in construction and how we can help them, right? Because at the end of the day, as coaches, we're really here to support them. Briefly, I've spent most of my career, 30 plus years in and around the construction, construction management, engineering industry, and probably learned early on about myself that I was much more interested in the people side and the business side of the business than I was in necessarily the technical side of the business. So I was sort of the crazy engineer who went for an MBA and then eventually got certified as a coach. And my colleagues, when I was doing all that, they were scratching their head, trying to figure out like, what is this guy all about? So I have basically spent most of my career trying to help people elevate themselves, become better employees, help organizations become more effective and efficient. And, uh, and now I work with lots of women in construction and lots of women who are in male-dominated industries. Okay, I love it. And I'm really curious if you could take us back, because you said you started your career kind of engineering construction, you started out as that technical professional, but really early on, you made that shift to the focus being on people. Can you tell me what was going on back then where you realize that's the direction that you want to focus on. Yeah. So I think that some of these things happen by happenstance as, as much as they do by design. So I think that for me, I ended up in a technical, in the technical world more by happenstance than by design. So I went to school for construction management. At the time when I was going to school, I think that I was probably guided that way because I was mechanically oriented, right? I was good with my hands. I could, I could build things. I could conceptualize things. So I ended up going into a technical track for construction management, though at the time I really didn't know much about the industry. So I ended up coming out of a program and then going into transportation planning, which is sort of a less technical end of a technical industry. As a result, I was really working with people and concepts and clients in a way which was 
not traditional for engineers. So I was not the engineer who was at the drawing boards trying to design things. I was at the front end trying to conceptualize large projects and then translating that to the public in a public outreach perspective as well. So I was always in sort of the people end of a technical industry by happenstance, not by design. Okay. So do you think it was like you had that skill set and that's what kind of, because I know things are rarely random. Like I feel like someone probably saw that skill set in you, plopped you into that role, and then that allowed you the opportunity to really develop those skills. I had a great boss when I first started out, two of them, who probably recognized early on that one of the skills I brought was the ability to be that translator, be the person who understands the technical part and can explain it to the to the non-technical audience as well as and the reverse. So try to explain the the non-technical importance of things to a technical group. So they understood the why they were doing things in a certain way and why it was important. So I think that probably that skill that was probably identified early on was the ability to slide back and forth between the two worlds and be that translator. Okay. And I think in construction, that is such an important skill to have because construction projects, there are lots of decision makers involved and many of those are not technical people. So I think this, this skill set that you have is really important and it may not be as common or maybe not talked about as a skill set that people need to work on. Well, there's probably a lot of skills that we don't, <laughs> we don't talk about in the construction industry, which are really pretty vital to being successful. If you think about the kind of work that I've been involved with, public works projects, the projects are in the multi-million dollars in terms of value. So when you start to think about the impact of not having a skill set for a project manager or a program manager or a leader to be able to have those conversations up, down, and across organizations to be able to make sure that there's clear lines of communication, to make sure that expectations are set and met. You know, those are not skills that anybody ever really teaches within an academic program, right? So if you're going to school for civil engineering or electrical engineering or structural engineering or construction management, no one ever really takes a class on communications, teamwork, productivity, negotiation skills, leading without authority, right? Any of those things. So I think that there's probably a whole suite of skills that, that we don't really talk about in the construction industry, which are really necessary for organizations and projects and people to be successful. I'm taking notes and I wrote communication, managing expectations, teamwork, negotiation, and leading without authority, which I would say influence all of those skills, because I agree they don't really teach that in school or in traditional programs, or even actually, you don't see a lot of courses that teach you these skills within the, like specifically for construction professionals. But from your perspective, what is the one thing of all of these skill sets that prevents people from being that successful leader from being that project manager within the project that's able to move things forward? What's the one thing that is the most important? For me, everything really comes back down to communication skills. So if you start to think about communication skills in the context of managing a team, being able to give and receive effective feedback, being able to report in on important elements. Why is this important? Not just, it's not just, I need you to do this, but to be able to explain the why as opposed 
opposed to the just the how, right? Or the what. And I think that the communication skills I saw when I first started in the industry, I always like to to joke that, you know, on a construction site, when I first started, there was one volume and it was yelling. <laughs> the you know the superintendents yell the project managers yell everything is is yelling that was the communication style it was sort of fully frontal and at a very high volume and i think that as organizations develop and as we have sort of hopefully moved past some of those some of those stereotypes yeah the communication skills have gotten better better is not necessarily good or or great okay so you mentioned it a little bit but i want to talk about the consequences of people not having the skills and being put into those roles in these mega projects? Well, I think that the the consequences are are sort of multifaceted, right? So there's the organism, what's the organizational consequence? I think that without looking at sort of the leadership development and growing employees, the organization becomes stagnant. It doesn't grow. You can't fully embrace what you're trying to do and do it successfully, right? So there's a component of this, which is if the the consequence of, of not having good communications or any one of these other soft skills is that the organization gets kind of stale. And when the organization gets stale, you have employees who say, I'm going to find some place which is more engaging and more suited to, to my style and interests. It's become even more problematic in, in the last couple of years because the job market is so tight right? Organizations can't afford to really lose their people, both from a cost perspective and from a, from a technical skill perspective. I think that, you know, the consequence for the individual employee is that they just can't grow. Employees are, are almost like plants. They have to be fed. They need sunshine. They need water. They need food. The food and water and sunlight for an employee is skill development, opportunities to experiment, opportunities to fail, right? Sometimes we don't think about providing employees the opportunity to fail as a way of them growing and getting better. I love it. I love it. So that's, so that's really interesting. And this is where I feel like we're at a critical point in the industry because it's come from this place where there's so much value put on technical expertise, but kind of given this storm of the labor shortage, people wanting to be more engaged at work, really, I think we need to make a shift to value some of these leadership skills like communication, being able to negotiate, managing expectations, creating that vision for people, that shift to like valuing those skills either at the same level as the technical expertise or maybe even more. But can you tell me like, what do you think about that? And do you think now is the time that the industry needs to make that shift? Is now the time to make that shift? Well, as they would say, there's no time like the present. You and I are both coaches. So from a coaching perspective, Coaching is forward-looking. We can't go backwards. We can't impact. We can't change what's happened in the past. All we can do is look forward and try and make a change going forward. So if we start to think about it from an industry perspective, there has been change. I mean, I've seen it over 30 years, but I think that there is, we've got way more runway before we're taking flight. So I think that we don't have any time to waste in terms of starting to make those changes. And I think that there is great value from an organizational perspective and from an individual perspective to bring in that 
perspective of growth, identifying skills, and putting people in a position to succeed as opposed to this is a civil engineer, so he's always going to do civil engineering, and this is a person who's into construction management and will always do construction management as opposed to saying this is somebody who's got some technical skills and we can leverage their other abilities for their benefit and for the benefit of the of the overall organization. So it's really, it's like, I love how you framed it that way. Like it's time to actually look at the whole person and what they can contribute to the company and to the company's vision, what value they can bring instead of their degree or their certification or number of years in the role in like yep. today. And I think there's really like that measurement of success. I was talking to someone in HR a couple months ago and they were talking about regional differences in Canada about what it takes to get to like a senior leadership position. And what they said was in Eastern Canada, so Ontario region and East, the years in the role was the most important thing. You need to have like the 15, 20 years in the role to get to that senior leadership position. But they said in Western Canada, we have a lot of really young people in those senior leadership roles. Because we're really looking at what do they bring to the table? What are the skills that they have? And they don't care as much that it, whether they've been doing it for 10 years or 15 or 20 years, it's more like what are, what value are they bringing to the table? And I think I think you hit the hill in the head is like the approach of are we looking towards the future or are we looking in the rearview mirror? And the way she just this person described it, it was these younger up and coming leaders is like they're really taking them and like where's their potential? And they're putting them in the role based on the potential versus on kind of like in Eastern Canada, what they noticed the trend was that they're really kind of looking in the rear view mirror first yeah. to see if that is what it's well, going to take. And, and, and there's a part of it, which is someone may have 20 years of experience, but they essentially have the same two years of experience 10 times over because they've been in that same role as opposed to someone who has been in any number of different roles and has a much broader sense of experience, even though they may have only done that particular job for five years, but they've got 15 years of other kinds of experiences, which help them navigate an organization or situations much more effectively. So what do you think is, I'm so curious about kind of the people that have 20, that you said it like two years, doing the two years experience 10 times. How do we shift? Like, how do we teach people these skills? Teach them the skills. Yeah. I mean, I think there are lots of organizations which are not learning organizations. They don't necessarily believe in professional development. They don't necessarily believe in feedback. There's a whole number of challenges that go along with the organization. So, you know, within the construction environment, I talk to lots of clients and lots of organizations where people have worked there for 15, 20 years. They've never had a performance review. No one has ever sat down with them to say, here are the things you do well, here are the things that we'd like you to work on, and here that doesn't happen. And I think that that is, for some organizations, that's the biggest barrier. So until you understand what your people can do, what their potential is, and where you want them to go, the teaching has to come afterwards. The teaching is the is sort of the tail end of the dog. Until you know what you need them to know and, and how to operate, giving them skills that are not going to be relevant Mm -hmm. um, to the organization's success or to their success is almost a waste of money. I love that you answered the question that way because that's totally the coaching approach. It's like, let's take an inventory. Let's see where your strengths are. And maybe there's this opportunity that someone already has the skill and they just need a little support to actually use it in their job, right? They need, mm -hmm. they need the opportunity. And then 
So it may not even be teaching because the teaching kind of top-down approach we know doesn't always work. It's taking that inventory. Where are you? Where's the opportunity? Where's your potential? And how do we steer you in that direction? You answered that. <laughs> you're looking at that question and you kind of like brought it back to like, really, how do we bring out the potential in these people and how do we help them deliver more value to their company? I think that's the same for the organization. So the organization, if you're going to look at your employees, you always have to look at the organization. Where does the organization want to be? For some, where do they want to be when they grow up? What are they taking inventory of in terms of succession planning? I talk to lots of clients where they say, oh, the owner of the company is in his mid-60s and they have no clue about what's going to happen five years from now or 10 years from now. There's no succession plan. There's no transparency. There's no sort of grooming the next generation of leaders and managers for it to be a sustainable organization long-term. So in the same way we're taking inventory of employees, organizations kind of have to take inventory of themselves and see what do they have? Who do they want to be? Where do they want to grow to? And how do they get there? Okay, I think I wrote that, I wrote something down as you were talking. And I think it's another skill set that we need to really think about for leaders. And it's strategic thinking. It's this ability to think it to the future and really have that vision. Because when you're talking about like not having a succession plan, not knowing like what's going to be going on, it's like you're working paycheck to paycheck, kind of like if you're operating the business that way. And I think really what another skill set to add to your list is like that ability to be forward thinking and thinking about mm -hmm. the future and then say, okay, now how are we going to get there? Well, and I think that from a coaching perspective, right, if we start to cast it in the context of coaching, how many times have you worked with a client where they say, I'm so busy, I don't have the time to kind of take a step back and look more broadly or think, you know, sort of big picture. I hear that with any number of clients over the years, they're so consumed in the day to day yeah. that they, that they never sort of pick up their head and sort of scan the horizon to see where am I going? Because it is really easy to get off course. And if you don't pick your head up occasionally and make sure that you're kind of going in the right direction, the cost to correct your course can be really expensive, not yeah. necessarily in dollars and cents, but you know, it is easy to get off course for both for individuals and for organizations. And I think that everyone is busy. Everyone is very busy. And I think that without the opportunity to take a beat, take a breath and sort of look around and say, is this where we want to be? Is this, is this what I want to be doing? You find yourself in places that you never expected to be and perhaps never wanted to be. Yeah, 100%. And I do find it's really interesting. So I get my own coaching because we all like to think, oh, I can do it by myself. I can be that visionary thinker alone. And I will be completely transparent. I need that for my own business. And because I, I, even though I know how to do this, I know how to help other people do it. It's really hard to do it on yourself. And, and it sometimes it's like, you don't even know the questions to ask yourself. Like mm -hmm. I'm a professional coach. So I've been trained to ask the right questions, but when it's looking at your own big picture, like what, where do you want to be in 10 or 15 years? And like, how, where do you want the company to be? It's getting the other person to help you clear your head and create that space where you actually have the energy to think about it because it does take energy to think about the big picture. And I think that the beauty of coaching is that when I work with my clients, they are carving out that time. So they've carved out the time out of a very busy day to 
have a coaching conversation. There's intentionality that goes along with it. It's not just a casual, oh, let's hop on the phone for a half hour. My calendar is is very formal. So they are putting time on my calendar. We are setting aside the hour or 40 minutes or whatever it may be. And they are clearing the decks. So they are clearing that space in their head to be able to think more broadly in big picture and really focus in on what do I want to accomplish? Why is that important to me? And what are the consequences of actually achieving this? So sometimes we have, I've had clients who have said as business owners, well, I want to be able to do $20 million a year in business. And I go, that's fine. But do you even understand what that means to be a $20 million business? So what are the consequences of in terms of your work-life balance? How many people do you have to start to manage? You know, all of those things where you go, yeah, it'll be great to be a $20 million business, but if you can make relatively the same amount of profit. Have you ever experienced imposter syndrome? It's that feeling that you don't deserve to be there and you don't know what you're doing. At any moment, people will reveal that you're a fraud and that you don't belong. Until recently, imposter syndrome was considered an internal problem, something that's in your head and it was up to you, the individual, to solve this problem. I want to tell you today that this assumption is wrong. There is new research that explains why imposter syndrome is a systemic issue and not an individual problem. We've created a free report exploring the evidence and providing strategies companies can use to address this. Here's the truth. If you're a woman in construction, imposter syndrome is not all in your head. Get the report at ambitiontheory.ca forward slash imposter. In a different way, you can achieve the same thing without necessarily putting a label on it and say where you go, well, I want to be a $20 million business. And sometimes that's just about ego. It has nothing to do with anything except for just being able to pump their chest and say, you see how big I am. I love that you brought this up. Sorry to interrupt. I love that you brought this up because this is really what coaching is and what the coach's job is. It's to ask the questions that nobody else is going to ask you. Nobody else in that person's life is going to ask them and like take them to this place where you're exploring, is this motivation for this $20 million purely your ego? Nobody, I don't think anybody else is going to ask them that question, but that's what your job is is to yeah. get them that clear because that's how you get the client the clarity to really hold them accountable to answer that question so i love that you brought that up and to peel back the layers it very often is not just a simple answer it's not it can take some time it's not necessarily in one session or two sessions it could take a month two months before they really get clarity on what's important to them why is it important to them and what are they willing to commit to doing in order to to achieve that yeah and i think our approach to coaching is really similar so the but what we do is we always start with what drives your ambition. So what are your core values? What are the things that are important to you? What do you need every day to feel like you're thriving? So we start people with figuring that out and then start with that big picture and then bring it back to today and then figure out like how we're going to implement it. Anyway, talk about how you work with people. That's really in a nutshell how we do it. I'm curious to about your approach. Well, I think we probably have similar approaches. I know that for some, and this is maybe getting a little bit of the weeds with coaching. So, but it's, I think it might be helpful for people to see a little bit behind the curtain in terms of what coaching is all about. Coaching in a very traditional sense is really about appreciative inquiry. It's really about being curious. It's really about peeling back the layers. I maybe tend to be a little bit more directive than others because I'm dealing with people who are in the similar industry. So I can see, I can see things. I can't choose for a client what the option is going to be. My tendency is 
not to have them stumble around and struggle to figure things out. If there's a range of solutions that are available to them, they still have to make the choices. They still have to be able to say, this is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm committing to doing. And I appreciate the the concept. And I'm going to sort of take it at 45 degrees of where, where we're talking about it and go in my own direction, which is beautiful. That's really what you want them to do because they're committing to, they're committing to something. Committing to something is better than just sort of floundering and committing to nothing. So from a coaching perspective, I believe in appreciative inquiry and asking the right questions and being pointed and challenging their thought process to challenge without being challenging, I guess, is the way to, to think about it. Get them to think in a different way. Get them to consider different options. And sometimes I have clients that occasionally they need a little bit of a kick in the rear <laughs> and you got to call them out on their own stuff. I think you're 100% right. There, there are times when we are asking questions of them that no one will ever, they'd be afraid to ask them for whatever reason. So we get to ask our clients questions that they probably never get in a normal course of business. It can be uncomfortable. It can be, right, which is not a bad thing. If you think about, you don't get diamonds unless you get to the pressure of a lump of coal. So sometimes our job is just to apply that pressure so you can get that gem coming out of the, the other end of the process. I love it. Yeah. So our number one rule of ambition theory is you got to get out of your comfort zone because that's where the magic happens. Yeah. It, no, it, it, for all of us, for totally. all of us whether, whether we're coaches or not, yeah, you got to get outside your comfort zone. Yeah. So I want to talk, a, shift the conversation a little bit to women in construction, because I know you work with lots of people in construction. I mostly work with women. I'm so curious the differences that you've noticed between men and women in the industry from a leadership perspective. So I would say there's a couple of things. And obviously a lot of it is generalization. For many of the women who I work with who are in the construction industry, engineering industry, they are way more likely to take on work that is not their responsibility. They're way more likely to take on a sense of ownership of things that really don't belong to them. They're very much team players. They're in a minority. So in the United States, we are still in the construction industry, a 90-10 industry from a gender perspective, even though the country is, is essentially a 51-49 kind of a split. So there is resentment of women in construction who come at it from a strong perspective. They're dealing with some baked in bias that is really hard to deal with sometimes. And often the reaction is to work harder, to do do more and add to their plate, even though they're not getting credit for it and it's not their responsibility, they often don't get the reward that's associated with it. Because while they're doing all of those things, they're also not promoting the work that they're doing in a way which is going to highlight their skills and ability and expertise. They're kind of getting the worst of both worlds. They're doing a lot of work, which is really great work, and they're not getting recognized for it. There is a tendency in the industry for some men to, they will beat their chest for the slightest thing that they did well, even though it's just part of their job. And there are women, you'll find out that they're doing unbelievable things. And you go, why doesn't anybody know this? They go, it's just the work I do. It's just the way I operate. And to try and get women to be a little bit more self-promotional without necessarily being disingenuous or finding a way that is authentic for them is something that I like to be able to do. I think it's hard for them in the industry. Yeah. So how are some ways that you can help them do it? Like we have a really great interview. I'm going to post this in the show notes with Stephanie Slocum. She breaks down really tangible strategies that you can use for self-advocacy. But what are some ideas that you that your clients have implemented? 
to get over this? Well, sometimes it's a matter of what they stop doing. So there is a perspective on this, which is to stop taking on the work that is not their responsibility. So it's a little bit of finding the voice and the communication strategy to push back on the work that comes their way that really is not their job. So I'll give you an example. I have one client who needs to hire more staff and the company is, she's not HR, but the company is making it her responsibility to identify additional staff, even though that's not her area of expertise, nor should she be expected to go out and recruit new employees. Her responsibility is to manage projects, not to be her own own HR department, but over the years, she's always done it. So they're accustomed to her doing it. So it's easy for someone to push it off on her. Sometimes it's a matter of being willing to push back a little bit on that notion of I can do everything. That can be an uncomfortable place because everyone wants to be a team player, but sometimes being a team player means you have to make sure that the people who are responsible for certain things are actually doing what they are, what they're hired for. Yeah. So it's like holding, pushing that accountability back in that yeah. really like, I need, and it, how do you break that cycle? Because it's like, this person's been doing it for so long. I think it's easier to push back the first time, but it's a lot harder to push back at, if you've said yes, yes, yes to all these things. Cause you're really changing. You need to change people's perceptions of you. And how do you do that? This is sometimes the overlap of where we as coaches start to to talk about training a little bit and bringing in, you know, operating models that that our clients can use. In construction, our, our clients understand schedules and those kinds of things. That's the easy part. One of the models that I often talk to my clients about is the RACI model. For people who are listening, the RACI model is who is responsible, who is accountable, who needs to be consulted, and who needs to be informed. So as you start to take on projects and requests, if you start to work through that model of responsibility, accountability, consultation, and informed, it provides some transparency and allows them to then push back and say, I'm accountable for getting this done, but I'm not responsible. I'm not the one rolling up my sleeves to get it done. This is going to go to somebody else. There are mechanisms that they can use to start to bring some transparency within their organization around the work that they're doing, making sure that they're focused on the most valuable activities as opposed to things that are not bringing a lot of value to them or to their projects or to the organization. Yeah. So it's really like taking that account of and having that model. I think that's what the important thing is like really like taking that step back and assessing the whole situation. And when you have a framework to do it, it makes it so much easier than, okay, now I got to call HR and tell them I'm not going to recruit people, <laughs> which is hard to do. But having that framework, you can really come up with, create that plan and then yep. get buy-in. So I want to talk about the value that women bring to the table that is different than the value that men leaders bring to the table that you've noticed? I think everyone brings value. I don't want to make it seem as though men don't bring value to the table and only women do. I think that there is different perspectives. And I think that if we can increase the number of women in leadership in construction, you're going to get a broadening of thought and a broadening of the way things can work. For me, I'm a father, I'm a husband. So there were times when there were responsibilities that fell on me as a father, which were probably a little bit non-traditional, but I brought a different perspective to things. So as I was getting involved in activities in my kid's school, as a dad among other mothers, I brought a different outlook and different way of thinking. I think that that's the most valuable part of this is to bring in a broader sense of 
of perspectives. And I think that in many cases, women are much more open to feedback, advice, and perhaps constructive criticism than some of their male counterparts. I think if that starts to move the needle a little bit in terms of leadership and construction, that there's a greater openness to doing things in a different way, taking advice, taking feedback, maybe that's the biggest benefit that we can we can expect. Okay, I love that. So at Ambition Theory, we talk about a transactional versus transformational spectrum of leadership. And you hit the nail on the head. Research shows that women naturally veer more towards that transformational side that is open, curious. It's about holding people to that higher standard versus the transactional is that traditional top-down approach where people are not as open to criticism. They're probably open to giving it, but not open to <laughs> receiving it. Because you think about that top-down approach, right? It's like the leader's job is to push down, whereas the transformational side is really you can bring it all together. So that's kind of how we frame it. And it's really interesting. And it's not to say that there are no transformational leaders that are men and there are no transactional leaders that are women. I love it because in construction, you actually need both, right? Like sometimes you need that person to really, the project's behind schedule, to lean into those like top-down skills to really get things back on track. But then when there's a big challenge, you maybe the better approach would be more that collaboration, more that communication. So that's why I love this model because we absolutely need both in construction and it just allows, it doesn't say that men are better, women are better. It's just really like we're different. And like, mm -hmm. actually, when you have that difference, that's where it's better. When like different people come together, that's where it actually gets better. And it becomes very much spectrum. It's <laughs> along the spectrum, a continuum. It's never all one or the other for any leader. They need to be able to figure out what am I going to use in this kind of a situation in order to get the effect that I need. So I want to talk about the difference between like for leadership development, a coach approach versus a training approach. I would say, part of it is skill versus will. <laughs> right from a development perspective, does the person have the skills they need, but they're not quite actualizing them? Or, you know, do they need some hard skills, and then they got to figure out how to how to implement them? Because they've got two different, there are two different roles, right? Coaching yeah. is really about awareness, goal setting, and moving people in the direction of where they want to be. And I think training often is, I need you to be able to do this particular skill, and we're going to bring you into a sort of a classroom setting and teach you skills, tools, techniques, and things that you can implement in task completion as opposed to the development of the employee and their sort of holby in certain respects. So I kind of think you need both, the combination of growth to really get people to that next level of leadership. You do need some of those tangible skills. This is how you do it. Here is the technique. But what my experience is when we talk to our clients, like when I ask them, like, what did you learn in your, in the other leadership training that you took? And they say the exact same thing. I learned the skill, but then I was never actually able to figure out how to use it on my project or with my team. And that's really where the coaching is. And I think that is where this opportunity for rapid growth can happen is where you're like really empowering people to take the skill and use it and really figure out how this works for you and your unique situation. I think that the one of the things that, that I've seen with, with a number of our clients is this combination of the two, where we are providing training, right? Some skill training around whatever the topic may be. It could be time management, it could be goal setting, it could be strategic planning, right? Then providing the client with a bank of hours, of coaching hours, so that as those 
people who are participating in the training program are going back to work, they then still have a resource in order to tap into to help them figure out how does this all work really for me individually? Um, you know, how do I start to work past some of the challenges I've got? That's a, that is the, that's sort of a nice combination of both training and coaching that kind of accelerate that development and growth. Yeah. I, I think you're right. You're like, you do need that hybrid because the risk is if it's just pure coaching, it becomes the outcomes are less tangible and they're not as aligned with the company's needs. Cause I think for coaching to really work in an organization, you need that sweet spot between what the person wants and then also what the opportunities are in the company and what the direction the company's headed. And then if you have that combination of training and the coaching, you can really get people all going in that same direction. And it feels authentic to the people too. It doesn't sure. And I think for organizations, the reality is construction is not an industry that is fully embracing coaching as a, right? <laughs> they, they, they don't necessarily fully embrace the idea around soft skills training and management and leadership training uh, either. But when you think about coaching, if you're going to coach somebody in an organization, the likelihood is the coaching goes to senior staff because coaching is not necessarily an inexpensive proposition. So they're giving coaching to senior staff and the folks below them really kind of get left in the wilderness. So the ability to combine training and some coaching and the coaching hours really go to the practitioners, necessarily called worker bees, but the folks who are really involved in the day-to-day -day work is a tremendous benefit to the employees and to the organization. Yeah, it is really powerful. Powerful. And I will say from experience, when people who have never had coaching from construction, with that, they love it and they thrive and they get really excited about it. And they want to tell everybody in their company about coaching because it's such a powerful experience. It is really transformative for people and for who want, because it really, it's, it's tapping into their motivation, tapping into their strengths and helping them channel it to like deliver more value with the company, really. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a win absolutely. for everybody. So I have one last question. If someone's listening and they're like, I like what you're talking about from a coaching perspective, I like this idea of leaning into my communication skills, learning how to manage expectations, working on teamwork, negotiation, leaning without authority, working on my strategic thinking skills. If you're kind of like, I'm ready to do that, I can see the value in that. I want to break it down to a 24-hour action. And this is what we do after every episode is just for someone to get started, like something they can do today or tomorrow to just get the ball rolling, what should they do? So I would advocate for if you're a leader or moving into a leadership role and you're managing other people, I would say in the next 24 hours, check in with people individually and put time on your calendar with them for a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Because too often I see too many organizations where like one-on-one -on -one conversations, supervision conversations just don't happen. I think as a leader, it is very important to make sure that your team members know that they can come to you and you have a clear sense of what's working for them and what's not working for them. And I think that those one-on-one -on -one conversations, they're not about checking in about what's going on with this project. This is about, these are the development conversations. These are the conversations about career path, about growth, about where do you want to be, about what makes your heart sing in terms of work, what makes you happy. And I think that as a leader to make 
your employees and your team members know that you care about them more than just like getting the task done really puts you on the path to, as Jim Collins would say, going from good to great. Oh, right. I love this action. I love this action. And I think I want to challenge people to just like chunk it down a little bit more because you said on all your employees, I would think just start with one within the next 24 hours. Start with one. And the micro action, and I want to be really clear to people listening, you don't have to have the meeting within 24 hours that you actually chunk it down to an even smaller step, which is you just need to get the meeting in the calendar within the next 24 hours. And that is like the best, that is a perfect 24 hour action. I think that is, that is perfect. And I think that if they do that one thing, then you can start to work on that becoming a habit. Once you get the inertia and the ball starts moving, it's easy to keep the ball going as opposed to getting it going in the first place. hundred percent. All right. So thank you so much for this interview. I loved this conversation. Michael, how do people connect with you? So you can find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a great place. We've got a website. The website is uh, aecbusinessstrategies.com. So you can find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn, either under AEC Business Strategies or personally under my first name, Michael, last name, Regal. And all my contact information is there. I love to hear from people. So if you are a NAWIC member, you happen to be listening to this. Hopefully we're going to get this out to some NAWIC members as well. You're going to find me in the newsletter every two weeks. There is a, there's an article in there and you can hear and learn more about coaching and professional development. And my email address is there. So that is accessible to everybody. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much, Michael. This has been fabulous. So thank thank you for having me. It's great to be able to have a coaching conversation about an industry which we both are kind of passionate about, as well as the coaching piece, which is also, I'm sure we are sharing some love around coaching as well.